welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem podcast. We like to seek out a better understanding, particularly of the Hebraic context of scripture, although uh, largely depends on what book we're studying, which is the book of Amos right now. And we wrestle with it, not just to know more about the scripture, but also to deepen our understanding of the word of God. And as we learn more about the word of God, hopefully we will also be convicted that we don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Might. So let's start with a prayer, and then we'll start looking at Amos. Our Heavenly Father, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So I pray that you would look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants, these who come before you and myself, and that you would purify our disordered affections, uh, that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Jesus, our Messiah. We know that um, just as the people of Israel, just as the people that Amos is talking to, our disordered affections, the things that we prefer even over our God, over our Messiah, can cause grief and harm not only to ourselves, but to our neighbors, and ultimately even to you, the God of the universe. So I pray that you would help us in this learning and turning to you with all of our heart, with all of our love. Uh, for you are the one that lives and you reign uh, with, with um, your Son, with the Holy Spirit forever and ever. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Calne, and he, and from there, and go to Hamat the Great, and then go down to Gat of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near to violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lamb from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs of the harp or to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, or drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, Who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. 
do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodavar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnayim for ourselves? Behold, I will raise up against you a nation, a house of Israel. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Nivo Hamat to the brook of the Arava. This is the word of the Lord be to God. So this is the um, the passage that we will be looking at for the next hour and a bit. Um, Amos chapter 6. And uh, I was probably supposed to read what we studied last week, but I don't think uh, Aaron in his time with uh, his family quite got me the... Uh, the uh, um, page that, that would review it for us. But um, just the whole of, of Amos, it, it revolves around the fact that people live their life um, and they live it in such a way that they enrich themselves, but they enrich themselves on the pain so often of other people, right? Whether it's through slavery, whether it's through economic bondage, whether it's through through even just being a a crooked salesperson, or you know um, what they used to do is they'd have weights that were a different weight for selling and a different weight for buying, even though they both claimed to be the same weight, uh, and of course. Uh, coins didn't really come into uh, use really until the Persian period. So how you paid for things was by their weight. Um, uh, but now we, we come to, to chapter six. I've mentioned before, uh, and so is Aaron, I believe, that we do have um, some understanding of when Amish was written, and this will actually play some part into what we've read today. Uh, most people think that Amish was written sometime in the early 750s uh, BC. Um, so we'll, we'll learn uh, through history that the um, Assyrian Empire actually didn't really become a dominant world power until really the 740s, 730s. Um, during the time of Amish, the, the land of Israel was actually felt pretty powerful. Um, Egypt wasn't very strong. Um, Assyria had a couple of weak kings. Um, at this period, it probably would have been uh, not that anybody cares, but Asher Dan the Third or Asher Nirari the Fifth, uh, neither of which were very strong. But right after the Book of Amos uh, is written, or at least we assume, uh, you have Tiglath Pileser the Third, who is one of the strongest uh, Syrian kings. So we'll. We'll note that for later when we get into some of the topics. So first of all, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. So again, 
When ich Amish talking? He's talking in a period of time when people feel strong. Um, the, there's a saying that uh, when, the, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And in fact, even sometimes the mice feel powerful. They're like, oh, look at us. We can do whatever we want. We can run around the house. We can, we can play. We're in the kitchen uh, because there's no cat. Um, and this particular period, there were no real large world-dominating cats around. Uh, and so Israel, even though they were a relatively small nation, felt powerful. Uh, there was one other nation that was somewhat strong, but it was similar in, in a lot of ways to Israel, um, uh, a local power that just for a little while had a little bit more, um, more command over the, the, that part of the world, uh, which was Aram Damascus, uh, which generally speaking, um, the the people of Israel and the people of Aram Damascus felt relatively on an even, even playing field. It wasn't like Egypt or Babylon or the Hittites or, or Persia or later the Greeks or the Romans who were way more powerful than, than Israel could ever hope to really fight, despite the fact that occasionally they, they won. And in fact, uh, in the uh, the battle um, at Marisha, uh, which is here in Israel, they defeated an army that was much larger than than them, um, and that might have been a world power if if uh, Jehoshaphat had not turned to God. Um, but anyways, right now they're feeling at ease; they feel secure. Um, and uh, I don't know how much I really need to get into that, but I will say that uh, who is feeling secure? It, it calls them the notable men, the first of the nations. Um, and again, you have this phrase, Goshit um, Hagoim, or uh, that's not how you say it. Uh, that the head of the of the nation. So it's the goyim. It's the all these nations. They feel like, oh, look at us! How how powerful we are. Uh, we're we're like the kings of of the world. Um, and just like we saw in in chapter one, uh, just a second. Yep, go ahead. Actually, Shimshon. Yeah, uh, just to agree with you, um, the verse one it seems to speak about uh, Judah and uh, Shalom at the same time. He's speaking about Israel and because he used the word Zion and Zion is usually referred to Jerusalem. And of course, Shalom is the capital of um, the Northern Kingdom, which was Israel at that time. So he was speaking to the whole house of Israel in this case. Yeah. Even though it was based in um, yeah, Israel, the Northern Kingdom, and his message was actually to the Northern Kingdom, but it kind of addresses both cities of God. Yeah, yeah he does. Um, and, and I think what's interesting to me here is that just like in chapter one of Amish, you have Amish coming out and talking against all of these foreign nations. 
and all the people will hear this and they'll think, oh, wow, like this is good. Like um, these foreign nations are a problem. These foreign nations are, we don't like them. Like I just mentioned, Aram Damascus, which is mentioned in chapter one, I believe, of, of Amos, Amos chapter one, verse four, for instance, specifically mentions uh, Hazael, which is one of the big kings of Aram Damascus. Um, the, the people recognize this, but then he turns around in chapter two and says, but you will face the same fate because you act in the same way. Um, so here he gives you a little bit of a, uh, like, oh, he does say, whoa, but, you know, he's kind of buttering them up a little bit. Like, you, you, you feel comfortable, you feel secure, you feel like you're the first, first of all the nations. But then in verse 2, he says, pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamat the Great, then go down to Gat of the Philistines, or Gath. Are you better than these kingdoms or is their territory greater than your own territory, than your territory? Now, uh, there's a lot of, actually, let me um, open this up. Uh, let me link a thing that you can look at later if you don't want. It's, you don't have to look at it right now. It's, it's a bit of a uh, archaeological thing, uh, but just in case anybody wants to look at that later. Um, you have the situation where the time that Amos is written is actually important. Um, now, some people think that uh, there's no such thing as prophecy. So some scholars, obviously I don't, I think prophecy exists and, and is in the Bible. Um, but so they'll try and fit like a time frame to things in the Bible. So they'll say, oh, you know, Isaiah speaks of so many years in exile, or Ezekiel will, will speak of so many years in exile, or Jeremiah will speak of something uh, that hasn't happened yet, according to their time period. And so they, they throw it forward and they'll say, oh, Ezra wrote that in. Like, oh, there are three parts of Isaiah and different parts are written by different people. Um, in this case, uh, one of the, the questions is, is Amos talking about something that will happen in the future or something that has already happened? Um, I think, as usual, it's a little bit of both. It's both and. Um, but I think in this particular case, he's mostly referring to something that has already happened so that the people hearing know, okay, he's, he's talking about how great we are. And now he's comparing Israel or comparing Judah with these other three nations or cities, really. Um, Calne, which is a city, uh, disputed a little bit about what exactly it is. Um, some people believe it to be um, uh, one of the, the cities, Nimrud, uh, that was built by, you know, going back to Nimrod. Um, he, uh, according to, to Genesis chapter, um, wow, just 
skipped my mind. Genesis 10, um, he built uh, several large cities. Um, and I think that this is important because several passages, several, several of the words go back to Genesis chapter 10 here. Um, and Nimrud was one of the capitals of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, so you have Nineveh, you have Nimrud, and you have a couple other places that were capitals in various periods of history. But again, at this particular time in history, Assyria wasn't really that strong. Um, you have Hamat the Great, um, which uh, is just to the north of Israel. Um, so it's kind of between Israel and Aram Damascus, Assyria, all of these great nations, right? And in fact, we mentioned at the end, they shall oppress you from the from the Vol Hamat. So the coming out of Hamat, or the, the going out from, uh, they'll come down south, just as uh, it's mentioned in um, Isaiah, from the north, from Jeremiah, from the north. Um, and they'll press you all the way from the north to the south, Brook of Arva. So the uh, Hamat is a, a nation. Um, you hear about with uh, perhaps uh, David, we had an alliance with them at one point. Um, and then you have Gath of the Philistines. Now, we're pretty hope we may or may not uh, be familiar with the fact that the Philistines have five big cities. Uh, they, in fact, had many cities, actually. Uh, but Gath was considered to be one of the five main cities of the Philistines. And while some of the Philistine cities were actually still very powerful, even up through the Roman period. And in fact, that's where, where the land gets its name today. The land of Palestine uh, comes from the terminology, the land of the Philistines. Um, and Gaza was still actually an important city during the Greek period, during the Roman period. But Gath, Gath wasn't. Gath was destroyed um, in the... Uh, period, um, it mentions it in 2 Kings chapter 12, 17 through 18, um, which let me bring that up real quick and read it to you so that you can hear what happens. At that time, so 2 Kings 12, 17, at that time, Hajiel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gat or Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the gifts of the kings of Judah had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. So in this period, so uh, Hazael was king from 843 to 796 uh, BC. He was probably the Hazael that is spoken of um, uh, when Elijah is supposed to go and um, uh, anoint this foreign king. And he goes and talks to 
to Hagael, who was not the king at the time. And uh, Hagael uh, was just one of the servants of the king. Um, and, and Elijah anoints him and says, I wish I didn't have to anoint you, but it's, you know, my God says that I'm supposed to anoint you. And Hagael says, why me? I'm just a servant of the king. And then um, shortly thereafter, it records that Hagael took a piece of cloth, uh, put some water on it, and then uh, smothered the king and, and killed him uh, and, and became king himself, uh, right? This is the kind of person that he was. Um, and so Elijah says flat out, I wish I didn't have to anoint you, but I'm supposed to. Um, and this king, Hazael, he, there again, Assyria um, is weak. Egypt is weak. The Hittites have long been gone for 500, 600 years. Uh, the, the Babylonians are also relatively weak at this period of history. Um, and so Hazael has become strong. He comes and he utterly annihilates God. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know if I looked at quite a few things uh, about this. Um, Gath never again becomes powerful. So from 800 on, the Bible hardly mentions it at all. Um, and in fact, very little in history mentions it. And when you look at the destruction of the city, uh, there's a big ring around the city that encompasses the whole thing, circumvallation of the city. And there's a massive con conflagration. The city is destroyed utterly. And from there, what does the king do? He continues on to Judah. And he basically is about to destroy Judah and the king of Judah, Jehoash, um, pays tribute to him. He, be he becomes a vassal king, right? And so when you're looking at this passage, this is only 50 years earlier. So people know about this. People can go and still see, of, of course, Gath, being a very powerful city, uh, was built where it was because it was on a, on a trade route. So people walk past it probably still, even, even 50 years later. So you feel like you're secure, Israel. You feel like you're secure, Judah. Go and look and see at these other places near you and see what happened to them. And remember, Israel and Judah, for all that they think highly of themselves, actually know they're weak. They always know they're weak. In fact, that's why sometimes they do the things that they do. In fact, the more, more tyrant or despot knows that they're in a weak position, the more they push, the more they fight back, the more they oppress people. And, and you see this oppression happening all through Israel and often even in Judah. And, and so when they're compared to these other cities, Calne, um, which may or may not be Nimrud. Um, there's uh, several reasons why it might be considered Nimrud. Uh, one of them being just the, the, I'm not going to go into all of the details, 
but uh, some of the phraseology, um, for instance, well, okay, I'll go into a little bit of the detail because I enjoy it. Um, Israel or these people are called the first of the nations or the notable men, the first of the nation. Um, in, in Genesis 10, it also talks about the cities being the, the, the great, the, the first of the nations in a very similar, um, similar way. Uh, but it's not strong, but it should be strong. It should be way stronger than Israel, but it's not. Hamat, which is actually um, not completely destroyed yet, um, but I think this might be where it's, it's both and, looking back in the past and looking forward in the future. Um, Hamat isn't completely destroyed, but it's also weaker. Um, and in only 10, 15, 20 years, it will fall, um, as will, of course, Israel and largely Judah. And you come to verse three, and I think this is a very important verse. Is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the heat of violence. So Aaron talked uh, last week quite about um, the last, uh, yeah, last week, uh, quite a lot about um, uh, Amos chapter five. Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have, why would you seek it? It's going to be a day of darkness. Instead, of course, you should seek God and live. Um, but these people, they're, they're pushing it away. They're saying, it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to us. It's, it's, it's far away. Um, and in fact, you also see, even among kings who were godly, you can also see this pattern, right? What did Hezekiah say when God said, I won't destroy you only a few generations from you? Hezekiah's like, okay, well, it's, at least it's not me. Um, it's somebody else down the road, and, and you know, God's will will be done, um, despite the fact that he was the one that showed wrongly in his pride, he showed the, the princes of Babylon all the things that he had. Um, and they, they put far away the day of disaster, but they bring near of violence. What uh, I'm going to open up, I, I think uh, this is an uh, interesting question. What do you guys think about this in terms of either in the time of, of Amish or even modern times or even personally? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, yeah, for me, it's very interesting because as I think about this, I'm thinking if we can, I can see what they were doing. They were if you push something far away, like, in a sense, this day of evil, is it not in a saying they're pushing away the judgment that God's not going to judge them? And so they're just adopting it. So the same way we can say perhaps today in the, the coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord, many Christians today are saying, oh, that's, that's you've been, you know, like the Bible says, you've been saying that for since forever. 
and it's not coming and they're adopting all these evil practices around them and not living godly lives so in a sense from what they were doing in in this day we we as christians could be doing it if we're not careful and trying to be holy and set aside for god we could be doing it today yeah uh i i I mean, too often we, we do push away and we, we don't even think about the judgment of God in our lives, in my life. Um, and I think perhaps sometimes recognizing that God is a judge is important. Um, not necessarily to say like, okay, you know, because I, I would also be one of those people who says, oh, I'm not. I don't know if God will come in my time. In fact, on average, I would say, oh, he probably won't based off of the average of the last 2,000 years. But at the same time, he might come, not even tomorrow, he might come tonight, right? And when he does, he will judge. So if you only say, well, God loves people, God loves the world, God loves me, I'm fine. God love, does love the world. He does, but he will judge. Go ahead, Shimshon. Yeah, thanks, um, Antikin John. Yeah, the, the, that verse is very, very interesting. And I love how the JPS puts it. Um, the JPS puts it like, yet you word off the thought of a day of woe and convey a session of lawlessness. Um, because when people begin to put off they thought about, oh, there's going to be judgment, you know, there's going to be um, accountability. Then it gives them that psychological complacency to begin to think that life will continue the way it is. And um, people begin to drift into doing all what they used to do. And that is for why the prophet from the verse one uh, began to call their attention that, okay, look at these other nations. They've, they're, they're, they've been wiped out. And, you think yours is going to be different? Now you push up that um, that concept or the thought about judgment, and so that you can continue in your reign of terror. And um, uh, we do it in our time also, because, like you said, um, uh, many people will see the concept of the coming of the Lord as uh, something that's archaic now. Um, it's no longer fashionable um, because people don't even speak about it anymore. Um, I remember my early years in Christianity. I mean, you don't go two Sundays without talking about it. But now you could go months <laughs> and nobody talks about it. <laughs> so it's, uh, I think we're, we're, we're slipping into that, um, that same situation of the people in the time of Amos. We just believe, oh, whatever they're saying is for some time in the future. It's not going to be for us, you know. Um, and uh, it's a very dangerous thing. Yeah. And, and not only for some people, some time in the future, but also for some other nation. Like this is, this is Amos chapter one, right? You have, oh, it's for Aram Damascus. Oh, it's for, it's for Gath, right? The Philistines, the Philistines were evil. And, and look, they were destroyed. And God says, yeah, they were. <laughs> you know, Gath was destroyed. Are you better than them? Surely you aren't. Not. You're not greater than them militarily. You're not greater than them economically. And you certainly aren't greater than them uh, morally. <laughs> so why are you excited that they're going to be destroyed? 
Uh, and why do you feel secure? Why do you feel at ease? That, that, that verse one, you know, um, in many translations, it puts it, uh, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Um, it's it kind of just portrays a lot of things because to be at ease in Zion, what does it mean to be at ease? Of course, God wants us to be at Shalom, but the situation then needed repentance, but they were, com they were comfortable in it. They were at ease. Um, they didn't see that they needed to do anything. They didn't feel they needed to challenge anything. And um, I believe the same for us today, um, in, especially with the work movement uh, culture that is sweeping across the globe. Um, we find it very difficult to speak about a lot of things. I mean, even though we cannot change it, but at least we should make our stand known. But um, in Christianity now, it's where we are beginning to get used to taking the back seat and never wanting to talk about it. No one never wanted to challenge the status quo. And we are becoming, you know, also comfortable about, you know, being at ease in Zion also in that same wise. Well, it's interesting. The actual word to be at ease in Zion, um, it's almost always negative. And you, you think to yourself, wait a second, why would being at ease be negative? Well, I mean, there are different words in Hebrew. Sometimes being at ease is a good thing, but then the writers use a different word. <laughs> uh, in this case, it usually means like, oh, I'm fine, I'm comfortable, I'm okay. Like, I, I can get by. Um, there is only, like, uh, I think only in Isaiah, in uh, Isaiah 32.18 and Isaiah 33.20, where, where the word might actually be a positive thing. Um, all the rest of the times, it's negative. Um, which, again, you, you would think, why would it be negative? But um, like I said, there are different words. And in this case, the writer, Amos, uh, picks a word that is very specific to what he wants people to hear. Again, like we think, oh, Amos was a sheep breather. Uh, probably not very smart, probably not very educated. Um, unfortunately, the concept that shepherds were the lowest of the low, uh, I personally don't believe that that's accurate to the time period <laughs> that we're talking about. Uh, this was a later development, probably mostly from the Middle Ages. Um, when in fact, like when you look at the other person in the Bible that's called a sheep breather, it's the king of Edom. Yeah, it's the king of Edom, uh, who was very powerful, um, you know, relatively speaking, uh, on par with uh, some of the kings of Judah, which is to say, perhaps in the world, not very powerful, but in their little tiny area, they felt relatively powerful. Um, and so Amos is able to use language to communicate what he wants. Um, and if you do have time, or if, if you're used to read through some of the Hebrew, um, reading through uh, Genesis chapter 10 and Amos chapter 6, I think you'll see that probably Amos was familiar with Genesis chapter 10. Um, he knew a little bit about the language that's used there. So they, they put far away the day of disaster. And we've talked a little bit about that. 
but they bring near the heat of violence. Um, for those of you who are familiar, even uh, remotely familiar with um, what, what happens in Israel occasionally, uh, the phrase that's used here is Shevet uh, Hamas. So if you're familiar with Hamas, um, we might think to ourselves, now this is a modern construction. This isn't something that the, the, the people of Amish would have thought of, but for our own thought, uh, let's think a little bit on, we're talking about today, a group that bases themselves off of violence. We think, oh, they're bad, they're awful, they're terrorists. But when we talked about putting far away the day, day of disaster, I think many of us can recognize that that is in fact how we look at life often. Um, now I'm not gonna say that, that us personally, we are commonly bringing near the heat of violence, but perhaps we should think about it and think about, okay, how am I treating people? I have this political view, but does that mean I should treat that person badly? Or I should have a low opinion of the, the person on the street or a low opinion of, you know, who knows what. Um, when we live our lives, our goal is hopefully not to be like these people, but that's not always the case, right? Sometimes we do ourselves bring some violence either in action or when you read Matthew 5, right, it can also be in your mind. Go ahead, Vida. Yeah, it's just very interesting what you've been saying because you know how you, you're equating it to some of the things we do, especially if you look at the next three verses. Sorry to jump a little bit ahead, but it's yeah. talking about indulging eating and drinking and anointing yourself with the best of the oil and it's it, the lord's really been challenging me on this is like when we look at the, when i think of what sins am i doing lord you know am i you know am i blaspheming as i you know we look at all these external sins we do but the lord's really been challenging me these are the things that are really dear to god's heart is to be generous to give to help out we shouldn't be indulging ourselves which in the west and i look at my own personal life, I really, something the Lord's showing me, we really need to be a lot more helping the poor, helping the widows, going out there, pouring yourself out and giving, um, and not just sitting there taking and indulging in our own flesh. And I think this is what the Lord is really addressing here, that these people are doing badly. And to be honest, I think for our society, we're doing it as well. Yeah. So let's let's go ahead and and uh, read through again these verses. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. So let's stop here. And think to ourselves, okay, <laughs> like lying down 
on the bed. Okay, what's your fancy bed? What's the problem? Um, you know, maybe you're you want to be lazy for an afternoon and and you you're on the couch. What's the problem? Right? Uh, you know, you go to a fancy restaurant. What's the problem? Like you you eat you eat lambs from the flock and calves from the uh, from the midst of the stall. Okay. What's the problem? Uh, you sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. Well, I like music, and I even, hopefully you don't all leave right now when I say this, I even like songs that aren't Christian, <laughs> right? They're idle songs. They're, they're hopefully not songs that become idols, but they're idle songs. You know, they're, they're there for fun, to relax, to, to listen to, to sing to, right? Not necessarily songs of worship or praise. Um, and I don't feel like that's a major problem. Um, you you drink wine? Okay, I, I don't personally like wine. I don't like the taste of it. But I like juice just fine, right? Fruit juices and stuff like that. What's the problem with that? Um, and you anoint yourself with the finest oils. Again, what's the problem with any of these things? And uh, I think perhaps this is where we can uh, have some problems, right? We, we, um, we do all of these things and we're fine with it because in essence, it usually is okay, right? Um, I don't see any problems with it per se. Uh, but then when you look a little bit closer, um, I, I think perhaps many of you have perhaps um, even been able to go to one of the museums or seen a documentary about the ivory uh, that was in the um, in uh, Ahab's capital, right? You have all of these ivory uh, items of luxury. Um, I mentioned Hazael earlier, the king of Aram Damascus, who actually destroyed uh, Gath or Gat. Um, they found actually uh, ivory pieces from, from his time period and from him that mentioned him in, in particular, uh, both in, in um, the ruins of Nimrud after, after the Assyrian um, were conquered by uh, Babylon, probably, uh, as well as one of the other locations. Um, you have... Um, but again, it's just money, right? But how do you get the money? How do you obtain the money? Well, we read in chapter two how they obtained the money. And how they obtained the money was through dishonesty, through selling slaves, their brothers and sisters to slavery by doing all the things that the other nations around them did. Right, that's how they earned money. Um, the I uh, chapter six of Amos is actually really difficult uh, one to to go through because there's a lot of words that are only used uh, once in in all of written history, basically um, to to tell us things. And so uh, the the term for to sing idly. It's only used once in the Bible, 
Um, and uh, I looked it up in the, the Septuagint, how they translated it um, several hundred years after this, roughly 550 or so years after this period of history. And they translated it to, um, to a clod, right? Uh, and so it's possible. I mean, they're not even participating. They're just watching other people do their thing and they're just laying back. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the term, the words used here are, are very, um, like I said, some of them only occur once. So it's, it's, it's perhaps hard to know exactly what it's saying. But yeah, they're, they're just kind of enjoying the music, applauding. They're not even playing the music necessarily themselves. And um, the, the term for instruments, uh, it's actually the word sounds, almost the same word is what you, you'd put wine into like a bottle. So if you have a bottle, like you pour, you drink your wine from the bottle, from the jug. Um, and so like, they're just kind of around drinking, carousing, perhaps, you know, their music comes from the, the wine they drink, um, et cetera. Go ahead, Chimchon. Yes, um, thanks, um, Deacon. Um, one thing I draw from it, you know, just reading, especially the verse five, you know, I like the way the complete um, Jewish Bible puts it, as was read earlier on. It says, um, in the JPS, it puts it this way. Uh, the JPS is the Jewish Publication Service. And it says, the human um, snatches of song to the tune of the lute, they account themselves musicians like David, you know? Um, if you look at the verse coming to, to this verse, verse 4 and verse 5, it speaks about things that are good, I mean, to do. I mean, like you mentioned, lying down or feasting is good. I mean, God has um, feast arranged for us that every time we should celebrate and do all those things. And But it's speaking about the false impression of their feasting and their songs. Uh, what it means is that because you can sing those songs and you can get revelations of song, doesn't mean things are going well. It means that you are prospering your business or whatever. You know, um, in Christianity today, we almost equate um, your spirituality to your financial progress. <laughs> um, uh, when you see a pastor in a mega church, um, he, he kind of accounts himself as a more spiritual person than um, uh, like uh, than any other person, you know, because he believes that because he's doing things right, so he's getting this kind of um, blessing from God. And um, that is what Amos, I feel Amos is challenging because he say you are at ease and you're doing all this, but God is not in it. You know, God is not happy with you because you, 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 you feel because all these things are happening that all is well. Yeah. So I think verse six and seven, again, you have uh, this turn. Uh, yep, go ahead, Francois. Uh, sorry, before we move on from five, um, five is like a very odd verse for me um, in between the rest. And you sort of really have to interpret from context why this is negative, right? But um, the Hebrew is really difficult there. It's really difficult to understand exactly what is meant. It's, it's like so compact. Um, the, the verb in the beginning... Um, um, 
you know that that's apex legomenum it's the only place it and that as you said that, uh, so it, it it's a verb that relates to this sort of a music instrument um and but the second part is actually where it, to me is even um it's even diffi more difficult to really know what is meant and, and it, I, I looked at a few english translations and they all go in different directions um and yeah this verse, this verse to me was especially pointing out the dangers of just taking an english translation and running with it um or that's embroidering it too far when the hebrew is still difficult to really accurately understand yeah, I, I personally, uh, because it's it's a hapax uh, legomenon, I actually looked um, specifically at the, the Septuagint, which is always a good idea. Um, but I think a lot of it is going into this concept of wine, right? Um, I can't remember. Let me open this up. I think it's a, a homonym. The, in, the term for... Uh, um, for the instrument that they're playing, right? It's a homonym for, for the jug of wine. Uh, so sometimes it's, it's a jug of wine, sometimes it's translated as a harp because they sound, they sound the same, basically. Um, and, and I think that's important as we turn to verse six, um, where you uh, have, um, we have one more, yep, go ahead, Sandra. <laughs> What really gets my attention is that, um, yes, they are indulging. They are, you know, lying in ivory beds or drinking the wine and doing that. But the end of verse six, it says, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Yeah. It makes me think, is the main problem the indulgence? Or is the main problem that you have been blessed, but you don't care. You couldn't care less about the others. You couldn't care less about the poor. You couldn't care less about even the sins of your brothers. Um, yeah, that's that's what really, you know. Well said. Yep. So uh, you're jumping ahead a little bit, which is good. I was just about to get there. Um, the reason why I sometimes approach it without jumping to what might be considered the point is because, as Aaron likes to say, um, the biblical culture was one of hearing. So you couldn't actually hear what was going to happen before it happened. So as the prophet is talking, you can say to yourself, okay, like, what's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? Or, yay, something bad going to happen to somebody else, or whatever it might be. And then there's a wordplay or a, a concept or a turn of phrase or a, a literary design or poetry of some kind, which turns everything on its head, right? So they're, they're taking their ease, they're secure where they are. And then um, the, the words, I think, in verse 5 are somewhat referring to, to uh, perhaps a, a state of, of drunkenness, even. Um, but what are they drinking their wine from? Uh, in the English, it says they're drinking their wine in bowls. Well, fine. Like, people do that even to this day. You go to South Korea, 
and and you drink out of a bowl, right? Your your alcohol out of a bowl. Um, that's not a problem, right? But in fact, uh, the the fur the phrase that's used here, again, it's a um, it's a religious bowl. It's supposed to be one of the bowls that is part of of the temple, right? And they're just drinking wine out of it, partying, listening to music, applauding the music, you know, making making music with with the jugs of wine that they have, right? Um, singing, you know, whatever it might be. And now they're drinking the wine out of these ritualistic bowls. Um, and not only that, uh, but they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Uh, so again, this, it, it goes, it's a play on words. Um, so going back to, to verse one, you have these people who are the first of the nations. Uh, here you have the, the finest of oils and it's a, it's a bit of a word play. Um, let me uh, throw it up here in the uh, chat. So it, it's a, it, it sounds very similar and it might have a similar concept in an in, in idea. Um, but not only that, but they're also anointing themselves. Now it's fine. Like the, the word Mashiach, to anoint Mashiach, it's not automatically a religious thing, right? It's not automatically a, a thing that you go, well, you should never anoint anything. You should never anoint anybody, right? It's, it's a word, like any word. In this particular case, it, it grew to have a certain meaning. But remember, this was um, 50 years or so after the message, the last message basically that God gave Elijah was to go anoint three people, right? And, and the, the terminology of the, of the Messiah had become important. And other people anointed those who were supposed to be set aside for God. And now these people are just anointing themselves, doing whatever they want to do. And then we get to the phrase that, um, that Sandra mentioned, but they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So um, let's go back to chapter five briefly and read this. Because again, this is already something they heard. And this is one of the... the um, chapter 5 is, is the, the centerpiece of the whole book of Amos. And in the centerpiece of the whole book of Amos, you have three things. One of them is this. Seek the Lord and live. Verse 6 of chapter 5. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Uh, we'll see this phrase again uh, shortly, justice to wormwood. And then jumping to verse 15. Uh, so the second one uh, is verse 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. 
And of course, the last one being verse 18, woe to you, desire the day of the Lord. Um, but that isn't necessarily exactly what uh, is the ruin of Joseph, although it's part of it, right? So they're not thinking they put far away the day of disaster on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, uh, of Amos, sorry, Tom. Uh, so there's nine chapters in Amos. The, the, the centerpiece is chapter five. Um, so the, the putting far away the day of disaster, they're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Whenever it might come about, it's not necessarily in their time, right? It'll happen to someone else. And the other half of, of the ruin of Joseph, they brought near the heat of violence. They're the ones who are actually perpetrating the violence on those who are in Manasseh, in Ephraim, or even in Judah, right? Because Joseph, um, uh, the, the prophets often use interchangeable words like Jacob, Israel, Joseph, to, to, to denote the children of Israel. Although in this particular case, probably more the northern kingdom, where Amos is talking in Bethel. Um, and they're just... They're not grieved about it whatsoever. And so what will happen? Well, they were the first of the nations. They were the ones who were most secure. Verse 7, therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Um, and, and you actually see this uh, to some degree with the exile of, of Israel during the time of, of the Babylon of uh, the Assyrians, right? Within 28 years or so, 28 to 31 years, if, if my guess of when this was written is approximately correct, um, Israel is going to go into exile. And not only that, but when you look at the, the exile of Babylon, if, uh, we're pretty familiar with, with the exile in 586, 587. But in fact, who were the first in, Israel, in Judah to go into exile? It were those who were in charge, people like Daniel, right? People like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were in fact very, very important. Uh, we might think of them as, oh, these poor little kids, but they were in fact very important. Um, and so, it was these important people who were sent into exile as early as 605, right? 605, 601, 6, uh, 597, things like that. Um, and so they're the first who will face the judgment, even though they're the, they consider themselves to be the most important. They've anointed themselves. They've given to themselves what they want, but they will be the first to face judgment. So the concept of God, verse 8, the Lord God is sworn by himself. Uh, we see this several times. I won't get too much into it. But you see it in Genesis twenty two sixteen. 16. You see it in Isaiah 45, 23. And then you see in particular Hebrews 6, verse 13, saying, who else is God going to swear by? What else is he is important, as powerful as God? So, of course, he's going to swear by himself. Um, so the Lord God is sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. 
Um, so this is actually interesting. Um, we have actually another Hapax Bhagavanan, a word that's only used this one time um, in, in the Hebrew Bible. And so I looked it up in the Septuagint, and guess what I found there? And it's actually to turn away from something that, that smells, right? Turn away from something that's stinky, which is interesting because he just talked about these people anointing themselves with the finest of oils. Uh, and so God is saying, like, you think you smell great, but you smell so bad that I feel this absolute need to turn away from it because it's so detectable. It's so abhorrent. Um, and you actually find this phrase, sorry, I mixed up which words I was looking at. You find this phrase several times in, in both the Septuagint and, in fact, in the, um, in the book of Maccabees. Um, but one of the questions I have is the pride of Jacob. So the first time that, that this word is used, the pride of or the pride, really, is Exodus 15, verse 7. Um, and I think you'll find this interesting. So you have the song of Moses, and Moses is singing to God, and he says, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. This word, in the greatness of your majesty, the greatness, it actually is the same word, pride, right? And when you actually look at scripture, particularly with this word of pride, uh, we see throughout Isaiah, we see throughout Micah, that the word in English is translated as, you know, majesty or greatness or something like that, because we don't want to say, oh, God is prideful. God is full of pride, because we assume pride is very bad. Um, but in reality, you have this juxtaposition. God is proud. He's great. He's majestic. But who are we to say that we should be proud, right? This pride that we have is really something that, that God does not like because he's the only one that should be able to have it, right? Uh, and so perhaps we should think and remember that God has every reason to be proud. <laughs> you know, he's the one who created. He's the one who's in perfect fellowship with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus. He's the one. And in fact, occasionally, you'll even find that God can put pride on us or in us. And it's a good thing because he's happy with us. But if we put pride on ourselves, it, it just doesn't work. And God is not happy with it. Um, and uh, I found this hilarious. Somebody wrote um, that, that the concept of, uh, who knows, Proverbs 3.34. Um, I'm going to see if I can look it up before you guys say it. Um, wow, that is an unusual translation. Um, uh, towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Um, 
which is then repeated uh, in essence in both 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 6. Uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, uh, which is James in 1 Peter 5, 5. Is, um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the, to the humble. Um, this one person I, I read, he said that this concept of, of God hating pride and giving grace to the humble is so important that he repeats it three times in these three different verse, verse, verses, which I find funny because, in fact, it's everywhere in Scripture. Um, uh, just a second. Um, I'll get back to you, Francois. I'll, I'll look that up. Um, and also Tom. Um, so this concept is, um, it's everywhere in scripture, right? God is always happy when we're humble. And he's not really ever happy when we are prideful in ourselves. Although again, a few times he actually puts pride on us or he feels some kind of pride in us. But for the most part, it's his own. Um, so that's uh, an important distinction. And so what will happen? God will judge, right? He'll judge. And, and this, this phrasing in verses 9 and 10 is very difficult. Uh, Hebrew, um, you have, uh, again, some, this is actually the verse that has a uh, uh, word that's not used in either the Greek or the Hebrew. Um, if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. When one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, um, shall take him to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Uh, and, and I think if you have a different translation, um, you will find many different versions because they don't actually know what this word means. And that's fine. Um, we don't need to know exactly what it means. We just know that, that somebody is trying to, to bury the dead, perhaps in some fashion. Um, and actually, one of the things that I found interesting is that uh, it's so, it, it would become so common that people would walk around to bury the dead that they came up with this word that is nowhere else. Um, and that in itself is, is interesting because it's, it's a new word for a new thing that's about to happen. Like, yeah, of course, you'll have somebody whose sole job it is to go around from house to house and pull people's bones out of their house. Um, right. Uh, and, and this person and, and the relative, the, the Dodi, uh, uncle, uh, which I think in... Um, the Septuagint is, is, uh, comes from the same root word as uh, Presbytos, um, the, the, the leader of the house or whatever, um, right? They're going to call into the house. There's still anyone with you? No, there's no one here. No one is in this house. Go away, right? Uh, so you have like this four-room house and and they're all the way in the innermost part, the farthest back they can get in the house. And somebody, you know, it's like a little kid. 
um, you know, when when they're playing hide and seek with with their older siblings or with their parents, your uncle or something, and you tell them to go hide and you walk in the room and you're like, is anyone here? No. Oh, I guess I'd better look in a different room then. No, I'm right here, right? Like the same concept. They're they're just out of their mind with, with terror and fear and like people are dying all around them. And you have this phrase, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Like they realize at this point or they will realize at some point that the judgment of God has come upon them. Um, and again, you have kind of uh, rightly or wrongly, um, the, a lot of cultures in this time period, they have this concept uh, that names are magical, right? So they don't want to mention anything about God unless he hears them and listens to them and says, oh, there's someone still alive in there. Well, no longer, right? And for behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little houses into little bits. And they're just terrified that if they if they say anything, if they do anything, if if anybody knows that they're there, this judgment that they put far away, this day of the Lord that they were like, oh yeah, yeah, there'll be a judgment of God on other people, of course. Um suddenly they'll realize that this judgment has come upon them. Uh, and then you have this phrasing, which, which is repeated in Amos several times. Um, this concept of, of obvious answers to obvious questions. Do horses run on rocks? Well, of course not. They'll break a, they'll break a leg. There's one plow there with oxen. Of course not. There are rocks everywhere. You're going to, you're going to, um, your blade will become very uh, dull. It won't be able to do anything because it'll keep hitting rocks and it'll, you know, uh, it'll bend or whatever even. Um, or your, even your oxen, right? Even though, even if they're going at a steady, slow pace, they might uh, hurt themselves. Uh, and not only that, but we're talking about a location that used to be a city, Right? It's right after this command of God that will break these houses into little rocks. Since when do you plow in the middle of the city? Of course you want it. A, because it's supposed to be a city. But now, even though there's no city there. Uh, yeah, so that's a slightly different translation. I, I did see that. Um, it's, uh, so some translations will say uh, oxen that plow the sea um, with, with some, some of the translations are, are it's possible. Um, but I, I personally like the concept of, of this translation where they're, they're plowing what used to be the middle of a city, but they won't even do that. The, the ground is just useless now. It's not a city. All the houses have been broken down, but it's also not a field because you have all of these stones everywhere. It's just a useless piece of land. Um, and so you, the answer is obvious. No, you don't. But the answer to how should you be just? 
how should you be righteous should also be relatively obvious. But instead, they've turned it on their head and turned justice into poison. Right? They've turned the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. And again, um, sometimes we ourselves look at this type of phrasing and we say, yes, that is exactly what our society is doing. Our society is turning justice into a poison, and our society is turning the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. But who is Amos talking to? Amos is talking to the very people who are doing these things. He's not talking to, you know, the people like me. I don't do that. I don't turn justice into poison. I don't turn the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. He's talking to these other people. But you know what these other people are saying? I'm great. I'm very notable. I'm like the first of the nations. I have my food. I have my beds. I have my music. I have my... You know, obviously today we don't necessarily look at the finest of oils as a, as a great thing, especially for men. But in that time period, um, it, was, it was important both for men and women. Um, and they thought of themselves so highly. So one of the questions would be, what about me? Okay, we can talk about our society, but what about me? What have I done? How have I done justice correctly? How have I acted in righteousness in a good way? And, and perhaps when, when have I? We hear so many stories today of Christians who will yell at society and say our society is, is just upside down, it's backwards, it's inside out, it's awful. And then a year later, or a couple months later, or even just in the way they're talking, they're not, they're not showing the grace of God. They're not being righteous in themselves, right? And we can do that easily. You know, oh, I, I don't like the way that the government does this. I don't like the way that the church does that. I don't like the way our society allows people to do this. And in fact, Sometimes that becomes like you go to, to church sometimes and you walk around and listen to some of the conversations. And it's always, oh, like, I can't believe that this is happening. I can't believe that's happening. I can't. Okay. What are you doing? You don't like it that much. Are you being righteous? You don't want to pay, you know, 35% of your, your income in taxes because. You know, you feel like because the government is helping some poor people, well, fine. Go help some poor people yourself with the rest of your 65% because you're supposed to still pay the 35% to the government because that's what God said to do. Um, every, every uh, I lead Passovers in, in um, Jerusalem for, for tourists uh, every month or, or two. And there's a prayer that says that God provides food for all. And you pray this prayer and you declare that God has provided food for everyone. 
And everybody at the, at, at the table, they're like, yeah, that's a great prayer. And you're like, well, wait a second. Does God provide food for everyone? There are people who starve to death, so how could he? And the answer to that should be, in this world, there's supposed to be 25% who are Christian. Now, I think everyone here has, um, an, has either has or has had an income, right? And, and we're surviving. Imagine uh, you used to have three children and you provided food for them every day. And they grew up and they left. Now, the question is, if 25% of the world is supposed to be Christian, could you not provide three other people with food? In which case, if every Christian did that, there wouldn't be a single person on earth that was starving, potentially. Simple math. So what is our fruit of righteousness? What are we doing? Is our righteousness that we go to church and we talk about all of the things that are happening in the world, is that doing anything? Or is it simply poisoning the world that we're living in? Is it simply wormwood? Bitter, bitter to both the world, but also to the other Christians around you who are like, yeah, you know, I don't like the government either. I don't like the people who are doing this or that either. And instead of actually doing something, we just gossip back and forth. Uh, verse 13, you who rejoice in Lodavar, um, you could even potentially translate that as nothing. Um, uh, we had, I, I knew a, a guy whose name was Devar, and he came to Israel, and, um, well, uh, he got made fun of a lot by the, all the little kids. He's, they're like, ha ha, he's low Devar, he's nothing. Um, they rejoice in doing nothing. Do we rejoice in doing nothing? Well, at least we don't do what they do. Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? I mean, again, this is a little bit more going back to Amish and their time, but I think we can all talk about like, oh, we've done some great things in our lives. We've, we've done this, we've done that. But have we? Do we continue to? And Amish, and this will be our, our closing thought, I think, people of Israel thought highly of themselves. But behold, God says, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from the Vo Hamat, to the, the entrance of Hamat, the, the place that was, you know, Israel thought they were even better than, perhaps, to the brook of the Arava, from the north to the south. And that's, that's where God leaves them in chapter 6. And uh, I hope, I hope that we can learn. I hope that um, we can purify, as this prayer uh, says, we can purify our disordered affections, the things that we like, ivory beds, music, food, whatever it might be, or even just complaining about these other people who are poisoning the world around us while we do nothing that we can order our disordered affection, the things that, that draw us away from being righteous, away from God, away from, from doing the things that God wants us to do and makes us say, I, John Arnold, 
Could be a little dishonest. I mean, after all, what's wrong with that? Shimshon. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I just wanted to talk about the Lodibar. Um, it, it appears uh, first in the scripture when um, I think David wanted to show um, kindness to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. And they said um, he dwells in Lodibar. And um, the meaning of Lodibar can mean no word or nothing. You yeah. know, um, it has a very negative connotation. And um, here he's saying that the people rejoice in Lodibar. Um, it's, so uh, it's not a good place for, for Mephibosheth to be at that point. And so it's um, for these people, I mean, they know the story. So it will resonate with them, I think. Um, uh, from my own perspective, I'm thinking that he's using more of a poetry to bring things to their remembrance of the, of the past. Yeah. Yeah, Amos, again, he was he was actually seems to know quite a lot of scripture, whether it's Genesis or um some of the uh the the histories, Samuel, etc. He he's knowledgeable, he has good poetry instincts. Um and he he re returns to these concepts over and over. He he makes Israel think. And he makes them remember things that they don't want to hear. And Aaron has mentioned several times that, that that's, that's what a prophet does in scripture. <laughs> he brings people to a point where they hear something that they didn't want to hear. But the interesting thing about it is we should want to hear it. Because ultimately, if we don't hear it, will continue doing the things that we were doing. And in fact, probably, we'll get worse at them. We'll become more stayed in what we believe in, what I think is important, what I think is good, instead of turning and saying, what is the righteousness of God? What is the justice of God? Let me try to walk after that. So um, thank you all for joining. I hope that... Uh, I hope that we can wrestle with these scriptures, that we remember the prophets, that, that we don't always look at the, the love of God as great as it is. Part of his love is saying, here's a prophet, listen to him.